book. It's chapter 5, if you have your copy of the story with you. Uh, For those that may be visiting today, uh, we're going through a series called The Story that takes us from Genesis to Revelation in 31 messages. And we're at chapter 5, and the story is really just an abridged form of the scriptures. Uh, It's the New International Version, where the actual scripture is there for the passages we're looking at, and then it gives summary statements to cover the other areas that we'll not be uh, talking about. But today, uh, Exodus 19, and just like that sketch that you saw, we're going to see how people get into trouble when they try to build their own God. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. It is timely and relevant and powerful. It speaks to our human condition, our failings, and our needs. And God, help us to see that there is no one like you. There is no other God. You alone are the creator and the maker of heaven and earth. And today we worship you and we want to hear from your word. So speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story of the Bible begins in a garden the Garden of Eden. And if you read through the Bible, you also know it ends in a garden, in a garden that is in the center of the New Jerusalem. And in between those two bookends, if you will, one of the most significant events concerning our salvation also takes place in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus before the cross says to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus shows us how we should live in obedience to the Father. God created Adam and Eve in his image. He placed them in this garden, the Garden of Eden, where they had everything that they needed for life. Uh, God walked with them. He talked with them. He was present with them in that garden, and they enjoyed that kind of perfect fellowship. There was only one thing that was forbidden to them, and they chose that one thing. And they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve disobeyed and they were banished from the garden. So God took another approach to doing life with his people. He would create a nation and he would reveal himself to the world through that nation. He preserved his people during a famine. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And God would lead them into another garden the promised land in the land of Canaan. And in this land, it would be described in the scripture as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they would have everything that they needed for life with him. Through this nation, God would reveal his presence, his power, and his plan for all people to come into a relationship with him. That nation would be the nation of Israel. And the scripture would tell us that he chose them not because they were the largest of nations, they weren't. Not because they were more righteous, they weren't. They were sinners too. It wasn't because they were any better than anyone else. It was simply that God had chosen to set his affection upon them and to use them to be a witness to the nations of the world. And through them, he would bring about his plan of salvation. And so God tells Moses in this book, in essence, he is saying, for me to live with you, there are three things that must be worked out. Three things that we need to remember too. And to make this a little easier, uh, three key words all start with the letter R. We're going to talk about rules and residence and righteousness. Rules and residence and righteousness as we go through this. 
Number one, God gave rules to live by. The Ten Commandments is his instruction for man. Let's pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19. Again, it's page 59 in the story. And I'd like to read part of this for us as we begin. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you, and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. All right. God's desire is to create a community that will reflect the love and character of the Trinity. If you think of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoying perfect fellowship and love for one another, honoring one another in that Trinity, God wanted to create a community on earth that would reflect something of His character, His attributes, His love, His kindness in this world. And so He chose Israel to be the nation that would do that. And He said to them that if I'm going to live among you, then this is how you are to honor God And this is how you are to treat one another. God saw the wickedness that had spread throughout the earth. He saw the violence of man. And he wanted to create a new nation that would be different. A new nation set apart from the world that would be a witness to the nations. The problem is, we don't like rules. Israel didn't like him and we don't really like them either. Or more correctly, we tend to think that they're good for everyone else, but not so necessary for us. For example, if in the neighborhood where you live, you saw somebody, you know, speeding down the road, going way over the speed limit in your neighborhood, you'd be going, where are the police? I mean, why aren't they around here to stop this guy right now? But if you and I are in a hurry and we're going a little bit too fast, you know, over the speed limit, we tend to think, you know, well, that's okay. I'm in control. I could stop on a dime if I had to, you know, and and it's just fine and, and let me go with that. We tend to rationalize our own behavior and think that those rules should apply to somebody else. That's because there's a rebellious streak in our heart, too. James Dobson told the story about a mom who was trying to buckle her young boy into his car seat. And, you know, if you've ever tried to do that, you know what that can be like. Sometimes kids sit down very nicely and they're in there and it's easy. And sometimes they just arch their back. They don't want to go in there. It's like they're doing this wrestling move. I mean, I I was uh, helping our grandkids into a car seat this summer and trying to get them in and William just didn't want to do it. And I'm thinking in my mind, Will, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. 
But either way, you're going to be buckled in. You know, the easy way, just sit there and let me do it. The hard way is, you know, I'm going to have to put the belt on you. And I know you're not happy with it. But why do we do that as parents? Why are we so concerned when we drive about having them in a car seat? It's because we love them. We're concerned about their safety. We want them to make it safely home. They don't understand all the dangers that are out there in the world and what could happen if we were in an accident. We love them and care for them. That's why we do that. Well, why does God give us rules to live by? Same reason. God loves us. We don't know all the dangers that are out there or how this thing may go. And so he has given us rules to live by in terms of how we are to treat him and to treat one another because he cares for us. And sometimes we are as stubborn as that little toddler who doesn't want to get into a car seat. You know, we just want to do our own thing. And I wonder if God sometimes goes, you know, Rick, we could do this the hard way or we could do this the easy way, you know? It's just like with us too, we need to listen to him. The Ten Commandments were given to help us love God and love people. Commandments 1 to 4 guide how we should treat God. They concern our vertical relationship with him. Commandments 5 to 10 guide how we are to treat people, our horizontal relationships, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to do a little pop quiz today. I want you to close your Bible, okay, and turn to the person next to you. And I'd like the person, you know, on on the left to give commandments 1 to 4 and the person on the right to do commandments 5 to 10. Okay, and let's let's go and and do it. No, I don't hear too much. No, no. All right, you, you can stop. I'm just doing that to make a point that sometimes we think that the Ten Commandments are good, but even in our own mind as believers, we may not have them all right in front of us. We may not remember them in the order in which they were given. So what I'd like us to do is turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, it's pages 61 and 62 in the story. And I'd like to read for us the Ten Commandments. In our church, we use what would be the the Hebrew order of the commandments in 1 through 10. If some of you have grown up in a Catholic background or Lutheran background like I did, you probably learned them in a different order. Um, That's okay. They're all there. All 10 are still there, but they're numbered a little differently in that. And what we use is the Hebrew order that's found here in the Scriptures. So let's take a look. Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. 
And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then he goes on, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's the fifth commandment. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The tenth, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, his car or his boat or his flat screen TV or anything else that belongs to your neighbor, okay? And when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Ten commandments. You have them up on the screens in front of you. Ten words of God given to teach us something about how we are to honor him and how we are to treat one another. And what we learn from the scripture, and especially from Jesus, is that those commandments are more than just a simple prohibition to do this or not do this. What Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount is that these commandments are broader than that. You know, the commandment to not commit adultery is not just I haven't slept with someone who's not my spouse, but it's really saying, do you honor your spouse? Do you love them as I intended? Do you love them as Christ loves you and if you have lust in your heart that's in the same line as adultery and you need to deal with the root of those issues in your own life your own sin concerning murder it's not just that we haven't killed someone but it's that we should be looking out for our brother we are to love our neighbor we're to be concerned about them And if we have anger in our heart toward them and hatred or bitterness, those things are sin just as bad as murder and we need to deal with that. And coveting deals with the whole issue of greed in our heart or envy or jealousy, those kind of things. And instead, the Scripture wants us to be the kind of people who are generous and giving because God has blessed us. We're to be a blessing to others. So the commandments are more than just one simple thing that's prohibited. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy also in the Old Testament where Deuteronomy is an expansion of the law to give us an idea of what each of these commandments deal with in our life. God gave us rules to live by. Secondly, God desires a residence, a place to dwell among us. And we see that in Exodus chapter 25. It's page 63 in the story, but I'm not going to read that. Instead, I'm just going to talk about some of the things that are there. God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent, a portable structure that could be moved as they traveled to the promised land. So whenever they set up camp, the tabernacle was there in the midst of them. And when they moved, they took it down and they transported it with them. God was very specific in the instructions he gave for the tabernacle and for the furniture that would go inside the tabernacle. He said to them clearly, I want you to make it according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. It was like God was giving them literally blueprints for how the tabernacle was to be built, for how the Ark of the Covenant was to be constructed, and all of the other things that would go inside. Why was that? Well, in the book of Hebrews... The scripture says this, if you go to the next slide. 
The book of Hebrews says, they, that is the priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What they were building here was a replica, if you will, a copy of what was in heaven. And that's pretty amazing. It was a picture. And what we see about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all of that was how in each of the details, it pictured a work of Christ. And we don't have time today to go into all of that. But those parts of the the tabernacle, those uh, items of furniture, the sacrifices were brought, all pointed forward to what Jesus Christ would accomplish in his ministry. It's amazing. I know that uh, this summer there was a, a replica of the replica of the tabernacle over in Wisconsin that people could go to and they could see it and walk within the courtyard and see what it looked like. And that's a pretty good visual aid. But can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in heaven and to see what was there and what that tabernacle pointed to? Awesome. Awesome. God would dwell among his people and they would see his glory in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. When they set up the camp in the wilderness, there would be three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. God was in the midst of them. God was in their fellowship in the very center and he is to be in the very center of our life. And God is with us whenever we come together and worship and pray. He is here in our midst. And that was meant to be a picture of that. When God moved, they moved. When God stayed, they stayed. Didn't matter whether it was a day or two weeks or a month. They moved when God moved. And that too was to be a picture of how we are to live our life in obedience to the Holy Spirit. When God prompts us to go and serve or say or do this or that, we should obey Him immediately. But there would be limitations. God would dwell in the Holy of Holies and no one, not even Moses, could see His face. When God came and filled that tabernacle there, enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, God would dwell in their midst. And they would see that by the cloud above it or the pillar of fire. But no one, not even Moses, could see his face. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year on behalf of his people when he made an offering for their sin. But what an awesome sight it must have been for the people of Israel to see this. I mean, imagine Moses. When Moses was in the wilderness and God called him to be this one, this deliverer who would go back to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses saw God in the burning bush and he heard him speak from that burning bush. But now all of Israel is encamped by this mountain and the mountain is ablaze with the glory of God. And they see the, the lightning, they see and hear the thunder, and they see this cloud that covers the mountain like smoke billowing from a furnace. And they hear the voice of God, and they are terrified, and they say, Moses, don't have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses, you speak. Speak to God for us. And all of that was done so that they might learn to fear the Lord. Well, thirdly, God requires righteousness in his people. Righteousness in his people. The book of Leviticus will describe how God's people could be right with him under the old covenant. God is holy and we are not. 
and our sin separates us from God. Therefore, there must be a way to restore fellowship between a holy God and a sinful people. If God is going to live with them, dwell among them, there's got to be a way that we can deal with this sin problem so that God can be in our midst. And the Bible makes it clear that sin can only be atoned for or covered by the shedding of blood. Well, what we see in Exodus is how quickly man's sinful nature rears its ugly head once again. Do you remember in chapter 19, I read where Moses came to them, showed them all the the words that God had spoken to him, and the people in unison say, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Moses, we're going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. We'll do it. And they will say that over and over again. God, we're with you. We're going to do this. We'll do what you say. But when Moses is not seen for 40 days, when he's up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, the people very quickly turn away. Listen to what is said in Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 32. In the story, it's page 64. It's the story of the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come and make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and they made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And after that, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Here it is. Forty days, they're waiting for Moses. They don't know where he is. And so they go, I don't think this guy's coming back. And we need some gods to lead us. And so they ask Aaron to make the gods like the gods they knew in Egypt. And they make a golden calf. And Moses is up on the mountain and when God speaks to him and tells him that the people have broken loose in this kind of uh, revelry and debauchery, he sends him down and Moses just, he's shocked by what's going on. I mean, he is angry at what is going on among the people. How could they fall away so quickly? I mean, here, you know, God had just given them the Ten, ten Commandments and what's rule number one? No other gods. Rule number two, no graven images, no idols to worship. What commandments have they broken? They've broken numbers one and two. And it's like, I don't know, were they intending to go down the list? You know, all ten, just one right after the other. It was awful what was going on. And we look at that and we say, how could they fall away so quickly? But let me ask you this. Have you ever been surprised by your own sin nature? Have you ever felt like, you know, maybe, maybe you came to church on a Sunday morning and you were blessed by the worship and by the message and you went out and then you got mad at somebody in the parking lot. Or on the way home you had an argument with your spouse or something happened where 
you were miffed. And you see in yourself your own sin nature. Or what about times when you thought, man, I'm just doing really good, you know, my walk with God's good, and then something happens in terms of pride or impure thoughts or anger or jealousy or a critical spirit, and you catch yourself. And the Holy Spirit brings them up. Sin is in us too. Sin is in my heart too. And we need to deal with that. And how can we think we would be any better than them? It is only by grace that we stand. And the thing that helps us as New Testament believers is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us who convicts us of sin, who guides us into truth, who empowers us so that we can obey Christ. And the only thing really that makes us different from the people in the world is not that we don't sin, and they do. We sin too. But it is the desire in our heart to want to be different, to want to be like Christ, to honor Him in all that we say and do. And we persevere, and when we sin, we confess it, and we get up, and we walk with Him. This new nation needed their sins covered by God so that He could dwell among them, and God would establish a sacrificial system in the Old Testament for Israel so that when they sinned, they could be restored to fellowship with God. It was very detailed and elaborate, but it was all temporary because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats can never ultimately take away our sin. What we needed was someone who would be like us, someone who would become a man yet without sin, who would die in our place to make atonement for us. So what do we learn from this chapter of the story? Uh, there's so many amazing things here. I, you know, I, this is really hard as a pastor to go through these things so quickly when you'd love to camp out on them more. But here's some of the things that we learn. That sin is a serious condition that separates us from God. And it can only be atoned for by the shedding of blood. Jesus is our great high priest. His blood once and for all atones for or covers all of our sin. And just as God dwelt among His people in the Old Testament, Jesus dwelt among us. In John 1.14, John picks up on this and he said, The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You know the word there for dwelt? Same word that's used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Jesus came. He pup tented among us. He set up His tent. He came in human flesh and lived among us. It's amazing. And even more amazing, today He dwells among His people in the church, corporately, and in the heart of every believer. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and he says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? He's using the word that describes the Holy of Holies, that innermost place where God dwells. And he says that that place is now here in the church. God dwells with us whenever we meet. And that place is in you if you are a believer, because God dwells in you. And he says that's why we are not to join ourselves with a prostitute or to commit adultery or engage in kind of drunkenness and debauchery or all those kind of things because God lives in you, therefore we are to be holy and to live in a way that pleases Him. And finally, Jesus summarized the whole of the law of God in two commandments. 
that we are to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. He comes first. And we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. Father, your word is just so incredible to see the connections from beginning to end in your plan of salvation and how it all points to Jesus is truly amazing. And you did it all for us because you desire to have a relationship with your people, that we would walk with you in fellowship today, here and now, and that in the future, when that day comes, when you take us to be with Christ, we will be in your presence forever. So, Father, help us to walk in obedience today to live in a way that pleases you and to uh, follow your Holy Spirit that when you prompt us, we will obey and we will do what you have asked of us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close? Step down into the dark